If you guys would grab a seat, we are in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, which Timothy's going to read for us, and in the Pewback Bibles, it is on page 570. We'll be reading Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Timothy. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your word, your living, true, inspired, holy word, and change our hearts by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking on Sundays at a three-week series. We're the second of three weeks on stewardship, on how we are to handle the possessions that God has given us. It's God's property, it's his possessions, everything we have is his. And so therefore, how are we to steward those? And whenever you hear a series on stewardship, it's like, oh great. Another preacher preaching about money. Listen, just trust me. If you walk out of here feeling guilty, you didn't get the point. Because the point of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he invites you to use what he's given you for you to have a deeper joy. Stewardship, biblical, godly, gospel-driven stewardship is the pathway to joy. This morning, Jesus tells us a story in Luke chapter 19. It comes right on the heels of what we learned last week about the story of Lazarus. 
And the story of Lazarus, you remember, was a story about a man who had his life transformed through an experience of grace. And his response to what Jesus did was that he had a totally new worldview about finances and about money. And right on the heels of that story, Jesus tells a parable. So what I'm about to share with you for the next 20 minutes has three points. The privilege of stewardship, the price of stewardship, and the practice of stewardship. This story that Jesus tells, this parable, is, it uses money to tell the story, but it is not explicitly about money. It's about the stewardship of the whole of our life, but I'm going to apply it this morning specifically to the way we use money because it is a parable that demands an application that's as specific as possible for it to hit home. And so I'm going to talk about finances in light of this parable. So first, the privilege of stewardship. Luke's parables always have a drama within the larger drama. He doesn't just tell stories willy-nilly. He's always telling stories to his disciples, but he always knows who's listening to him. He always knows that there's a crowd of people on the margins hearing what he's saying. And so therefore, in Luke, every one of the, the parables Jesus tells that Luke records has a shock value to it. He's trying to shock his hearers to wake them up. And so he tells this story. There was a man who was a nobleman who went away to Rome. He went away to get his kingdom. And when he went away, he gave ten of his servants, ten minas. That's the equivalent of about three months' wage. And when he comes back, he finds each of his servants had responded with his gift in different ways. Now, Jesus is 17 miles from Jerusalem. He is walking with his disciples to Jerusalem where he's going to be killed and he tells all of his disciples I'm going to Jerusalem where the kingdom is going to come and they're all thinking that this is the end that we're 17 miles from the end of the world or we're 17 miles from when Jesus is going to rise up in military might and conquer the Romans and so all of his disciples hear me are thinking this is it And Jesus tells them this story to remind them that you have a responsibility in the meantime. Because while I go to Jerusalem, I go to Jerusalem to be crushed and to be bruised and to be killed. What therefore is your responsibility now? Quit thinking about the end of the world. Quit thinking about when I come to make all things new. Quit. What are you supposed to do right now? How are you to be responsible right now? And so he tells this story. Herod the Great was um, the king of Israel not long before this, and he had three sons, and his three sons each got a third of his rule and his reign, and one of those sons was Archelaus. Undoubtedly, when Jesus is telling the story, everybody would have thought that Jesus was talking about Herod the Great going off, giving his uh, kingdom to his three sons, and his sons, then Herod the Great dies, his three sons then go to Rome to get from the emperor the right to rule over their father's estate. And they all know that Jesus is thinking about Archelaus as the illustration here. Archelaus is the king who goes away and he comes back to see how they would respond. At this point in the parable, Archelaus is 
kind of a puppet king. He's over, and people hated him. They hated Archelaus, this king, because the first Passover, he was in power. Do you know what he did for the fun? He killed 3,000 people. He killed 3,000, and so everybody in the country hated Archelaus. So Jesus says there's a king who goes off, and his citizenry hates him, but he gives to his ten servants ten minas. And he comes back, and he says to the first servant, first servant, um, what did you do with my ten minas? And he says, Lord, I've taken your ten minas, and I've taken your mina, and I've made ten more. I've taken your one mina and made ten more. That's a thousand percent interest. It's a pretty good profit, don't you think? And Jesus says to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. You will be over ten of my cities. Then the second servant says, Lord, Lord, I took your mina and I made five minas more. That's a 500% profit. That's pretty good. And to him, Jesus gives the same response. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You shall be over five cities. These two first servants are undoubtedly his disciples. But then the third servant comes and he says, Lord, Lord, I knew that you were a severe man, so I took your ma- uh, mina and I hid it in a napkin because I knew that you were strict. You were austeros, is the Greek word. You were severe. You were austere. And I was frightened by you. And Jesus says to him, you are a wicked servant. And he takes the mina and he gives it to the man who has ten. Now, what's the point of the story so far? The point of the story was that we are to be stewards of all that God has given us with the whole of our lives. And notice that some of us have different talents and skills than others. The person who makes 1,000% and the person who makes 500%, they are treated exactly the same. In proportion, they're given more responsibility in light of what they've done. One has 10 cities, that's different, obviously. One has five. But Jesus' response to them is the same. The king's response is, well done, good and faithful servant. But then there are people, these servants, who are faithful to the king, a group of people who are extremely fearful of God. Who think that God is very strict and very cruel. And because they're afraid of him, they take what God has given them and they hang on to it with all of their life. They cling to what God has given them as though they do not want to see his displeasure. But ironically, that's exactly what they see. To take something in a napkin, right? The Talmud, which is the Jewish uh, lesson book of how Jews were to live. To take a a mina, the very least you should do is you should take it to the money changer's bench. You know that the word bank comes from the word bench, right? Because it comes from the money changer's bench. So you should at least take it to the money changer's bench, the bank, But he took it and he put it in a napkin, which was like completely foolish. And Jesus' point is, look, you were driven by an unbelievable sense of fear. 
which I think, frankly, is a pretty helpful diagnostic for some of us who go to church all the time in a religious, conservative area like we live in. A lot of people have been given great talents by God, but you know what they do with it? They cling to it, and they put it in napkins. They hang on to it because they're fearful, of, because they are using. They go to church, they play the game, but they really believe that God is not who he says he is, that he is really a capricious, cruel God, and they're fearful of trusting him with what he has given them. And so they hang on to it. They cling to it. They do not invest it in the right things. In what ways do you fear God? For some of us who um, really can care less, we're wide open. We do whatever we want. We tend to be more licentious. We just say, you know what? I don't fear him at all. I don't fear God. He's given me all that I need. He's put it in here. I just have to live my life according to the way I want. There really is no God, if I'm honest. And then there's another group of people who are extremely religious, very self-righteous, and they say, I am crushed by this idea of God. I, I think that he is going to weigh me against what I've done, and if the scales balance out, that'll be wonderful. But I'm really trying to work my way into heaven. I'm trying to get God to like me by my performance. And they tend to have a very fearful view of God, which causes them not to trust him with their possessions, but to cling to it, to be so fearful that he's going to take it away, that they become extremely self-conscious. Are you with me? There are people who are frozen with fear, and to be quite honest, many people in Owasso who are conservative churchgoers are frozen with fear. Because they believe that their self-saving strategies for life are what are going to get the king to like them. When the king has said, I like you. I love you. I died for you. Would you go and use what I've given you for my glory and your joy? Get it out of your napkin. At least put it in the bank. And then the shock comes to this crowd who, remember, had just said to um, Zacchaeus, they called Zacchaeus a sinner, if you remember from last week. And the shock comes because these are the religious conservative Pharisees. These are the guys who think they've got Jesus. They, they know who he is. He's another Johnny come lately. They trust in the one true God. And then Jesus says, oh, yeah. And then there are people who are under this king who hate him, which obviously are all the hearers that are listening to the story. And do you know what the king does with those people? He casts them out into utter darkness. He says, bring them here and slaughter them before me. He is reflecting back on what Archelaus did at the first Passover. But he is saying that He's turning the tables to say that God is a very fearful, very um, righteous king. And he demands holiness. And if you're trying to please him by your do-goodism, you're setting yourself up for a life of utter destruction. And so obviously these disciples listen to this parable. 
And the hearers in the crowd who think they are the people who rightly reject the king are shocked to hear that while they're the moral conservatives, while they're the ones who are doing all these good things, they're the ones actually who were slaughtered before the holy, righteous God of Israel because they did not embrace the reign of the king. So there are three groups of people in this parable. There are the servants who were faithful with the mina. There are the servants who were so fearful that they kept that mina hidden. And then there was the crowd who utterly rejected God even though they played the religious card every week. God says, I never do you. I didn't even know you because you did not trust in me. You didn't humble yourself. You didn't rely on what I've done and you tried to live according to the self-saving strategies of life. Now, that's the point. If, that's the point of the parable. That God is calling us to be stewards of what he's given us. And oftentimes, you will find yourself as characters in that story that you would never imagine yourself being. And so I want to take this now and I want to make it more um, concrete. Let's talk about the way we handle finances. This is just as true for me as it is for you. It's hard to preach on stewardship because it means that nobody's exempt. If you miss the privilege of stewardship, you will be enslaved. You will be enslaved. Because a lot of us in Owasso have a very individualistic approach to money. The money is mine. Right? It's a very individualistic approach. Or there are some few around here but some who say no the money is the, the states you know that's the socialistic approach or the people who say no the money is my families that's the traditionalistic approach the point of this parable is that god is saying the money is mine all of it is mine. why were you why have you been so successful and everybody in this room is successful Because I orchestrated the events of your life so that you would be at the right place at the right. I had you born into the family into which you were born. Who provided that education for you? God did. Who provided your house? God did. Everything we have is ours. In the early church, unlike their pagan neighbors, Christians were very promiscuous with their money, not with their bodies. They shared their possessions in a proportion and in a joy that the surrounding materialistic culture had never seen. And the radical generosity began to impact the early church and the culture in ways they could never have imagined. Acts 2 45 says they sold their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone who had need. They did not consider that any of their possessions was their own. In a letter in the second century, one of the early church fathers says they share their table with all but not their bed with all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet they have many things. If if you are like so many of us in Owasso, if you live according to one bottom line, that is the profit margin or your paycheck amount, 
you will find that the power of money, money is a great thing. The Lord does not say wealth is bad at all. But you will find that there's a negative power of money that will lead you so quickly into idolatry if you're not conscious about it. One of the things that happens is that when you live by one bottom line, that is the profit, what you bring home is that you find yourself absorbed by it. You've got to make more, and your standard of living continues to go up as you continue to make more and more money. But what would it be like if we as a church live by multiple bottom lines? We all, we all, by the way, do this. What I mean by multiple bottom lines is that it's not just how much money you make, but it's the quality of your family. And it's, it's not just how much profit you make at your company, for your company, but it's the way you treat your employees. Those of you who hire and fire, before you fire people, do you consider other costs besides the profit margin of that company? Do you have multiple bottom lines? If you don't, if you don't, if money is what drives you and you haven't learned how to see what God has given you with multiple bottom lines, if you haven't learned to live with multiple, then here I made a little list. Here's what happens to you. The first thing that happens to you is that you tend to stay in jobs that you probably shouldn't stay in, but you can't go anywhere else because you can't make any more money anywhere else. You can't make that kind of money in another job. And so you tend to stay in a job that's really not doing any good for your family because you're never home. It's probably really not doing that much good for the, um, for the community. Maybe, maybe not. But you stay in it because it puts bread on the table and you become enslaved to this job. If you, you, oftentimes that will happen. You'll stay in a job too long. Are you with me? Does that make sense? You kind of feel enslaved by your work. The second thing that happens if you allow money to be an idol in your heart is that you will overwork. You will, because that's your source of identity. It's having a nicer house, a nicer car. It's having the luxuries that you dream of. You dream about them. If you would dream about living out the gospel as much as you dream about the luxuries we have, think how different our life might be. Mine included. We'll overwork. That's why God gave um, Israel the Sabbath, to make them take one in seven days off, to force them to be one-seventh less profitable, so they would learn that there are multiple bottom lines to life. Third, um, I have to be careful how I talk about this one. If, If money becomes your driving source of identity, you will become bipolar with regard to money. Now, I know bipolar is a technical clinical definition of someone who has a bipolar disorder. That's not what I'm talking about. But you'll be bipolar metaphorically with regards to money. That is, when times are good, you will find that you are sky high. And you will ride the highs and it will be awesome. And you will be on top of the world. But then the times that come when It's not that good of a year or a month or a week or whatever. You will fall into depression because you'll be crushed because of the way you've idolized money as the source of your identity. You will ride 
the polarity, the insidious polarity that money can tend to bring. Now, one commentator said this, when it comes to money, Jesus is not saying that the rich should get richer by this parable. Take one mina from the guy who didn't uh, obey the Lord and give it to the guy who had 10. He's not saying the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Look at the context. It's the man whose abundance shows that he has made good use of what he has. Who will be given more? There's a principle involved. The smallest gift must be put to good use. In that, in that life, the Christian life, we do not stand still. We use our gifts and make progress or we will lose what we have. It is a matter of life and death how you use your resources. It really is. How can we do this? How can you embrace the privilege of stewardship? The only way that you can embrace this is if you see the price of your stewardship. That we were once vice regents in a garden. We had given, been given everything to enjoy with the Lord, but Adam made a very strategic error. That there was one thing he couldn't touch. There was not sin juice in that fruit. It wasn't, you know, commentators, theologians don't think that this fruit was special. It was just fruit, but it was the Lord reminding him that everything is his. Do you trust me with that? Can you obey me? And Adam coveted that tree, and he ate it. And God could have therefore said to all of humanity in light of Adam's first sin, all of humanity who fell because of Adam's sin, hey, you know what? You're all gone. I'm going to slaughter every one of you because I'm a righteous and holy God. But he didn't, did he? God invited us to, get, to again be what theologians call vice regents, that is to, be, to reign with him now. By being a countercultural community in the church that uses wealth and sex and all the things that are good in life in ways that are commensurate with how he has designed them. And in so doing, we do live differently. We live radically differently. And Jesus says to us now, look, I forgive you for your sin, but that sin doesn't just disappear into the ether jesus when you forgive somebody you absorb the blow of their offense jesus forgave us for all of our sins and he took that blow on himself at the cross and unless you can see the price that jesus paid for your steward that you could even be a steward you will never be a faithful steward to the lord because you will constantly be living like that third servant in fear that he's going to come and take it away but if you know that he has died for you and loves you, you'll be able to live, to expend, to invest into ways that are commensurate with what he's called you to invest. If you're going to understand the privilege of stewardship, you have to know the price of your stewardship. And Jesus Christ paid the price. There are a lot of us in this room who are like that third servant. Let me just be frank for a minute. We're really fearful of God. We're growing out of our very guilt-riddled church backgrounds. And we're fearful of Him. And we tend to think that God is not good. 
because of what's happened to us in life or by the fact that we're not where we wanted to be with our IRA or what have you. And we tend to let that project on our own theology about God. And we tend to say that God is not good. And that's why we have a major reason why we have a lot of trouble in our joy. Because we don't know if he's good. That's often what people will say who don't believe in God at all. Who say, God could possibly be good. Look at all the evil that's happened in the world. But if you look at the cross, it totally throws that argument out the window. Because at the cross, you have a God who wasn't like the Greek gods who sacrificed other people. You have a God himself who came to earth, the incarnate word, and he sacrificed himself. Don't you see how good he is? Like we're all worried about how much money we have in our checking account. God sacrificed his life for you and for me. And that should free us up. The privilege and the price are unbelievable. Now, third, the practice, and and I'll be brief, but let's talk together as a church family. God knew that Israel needed very tangible ways to use their money, and so he gave them three primary laws in the Old Testament. I'm just going to briefly mention those. He gave them three laws to say, I'm going to help you see that you've got to live by multiple bottom lines. That is, you've got to see that I have made you a steward over so much. Let go of your idol of money and let me use you with your gifts and talents and resources in a way that will help extend my kingdom. The first law that he gave was gleaning, which means that when you harvest a field, if you drop a, a kernel on the ground, you don't go back and get it. Like if you've ever mowed your lawn, you know what it's like. You know, you have to weed eat after you mow, right, to get the edges. Where when you harvest, you don't get the edges. You leave it there so that the poor can come and they can glean the fields. It was, it was God's program for caring for the poor. It's called gleaning. And he built it into the social fabric of Israel. The second thing that God gave them was the year of Jubilee. Have you heard about this? The year of Jubilee in Deuteronomy Um, or Leviticus 25, you can read about it. Every 50th year, the land that was proportioned out to God's people returned to the original owners. Did you know that? It was God's way of saying, I want to keep the haves, there will always be haves and have-nots, but I want to keep the haves and have-nots relatively close. I want to remind them that everything is mine. And he redistributed the wealth every 50 years so that Israel could be a new society who learned that there are multiple bottom lines to their resources. And of course, Jesus in the New Testament says that he himself is our jubilee. The first sermon he ever preached when he opened the scroll of Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the jubilee year in the Old Testament. Jesus is our jubilee. Then third, the tithe. The Old Testament believers were to give 10% of their income. Now, because we're always wondering about this question, let me just nail it. The New Testament never anywhere 
explicitly requires tithing. Did you know that? But in Matthew 23, Jesus castigates the Pharisees for not being willing to go beyond the tithe when there are community needs. This means that while the church can never require members to give 10% of their income, Jesus assumes that the followers will go beyond tithing in their giving. So it's, not even, it's, it's reasonable to say that since we have even greater privileges than the Old Testament saints will, that we will be more generous. It's almost inconceivable that the New Testament saints would be less generous than the Old Testament saints. So tithing I, is a minimum rule of thumb for Christians who want to give in a gospel way to the church, the poor, and to others. But let me say this. Chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith also says there's liberty of conscience. And so for some of you, that may mean you're giving 30% of your income already. And others of you, you're trying to get to three. And that is okay. It is okay. You know what Jesus says to Zacchaeus? He says, I'm going to give this much. And Jesus, okay, great. Are you giving joyfully? Are you giving regularly? Are you giving sacrificially? That's the point. It's not if you're checking the box. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and 9, you read the example of the early church supplying the needs for brothers Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in severe tests of afflictions, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. The point, Paul says, is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God, do you really believe what I'm about to say? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's a powerful story about uh, the Roman Emperor Julian, who tried to revive the pagan religion in Rome when he came to power. And he could not do it. Do you know why? Because there were a small group of Christians who gave out of their poverty that they changed the culture of Rome. He wrote a letter that we now have that, that's been passed down to us. He says, Their success lies in their charity for all. They take care not only of their poor, but of ours as well. In the third century, there was a tremendous plague in the city of Carthage. People were leaving the city. They didn't want to get sick. They were getting out of there. And there was a Christian leader there named Cyprian. And Cyprian called all the Christians into the town square at Carthage. And he, he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what Jesus did. For though he was rich, he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. 
And he said, I call you to fan out through this town. It's the quote. And give personal and financial aid to all according to their need, not whether they're Christian or not, or even whether they are your enemies or not. We are called here to follow what our master did. And you, you saw a slide that I saw pop up in my periphery about Owasso. You know that of the three uh, suburbs in Owasso, if we can see that slide again, the three suburbs in Owasso, I mean, in Tulsa, rather, Bigsby, Broken Arrow, and Owasso. You know, Bigsby, notice the people that live below the poverty line. There are people who make $11,500 or less, and then if they have another person in their house, you add 4000 bucks to it. That's the poverty line for the state of Oklahoma. 5% of people in Bigsby live below the poverty line. 6% of people in Broken Arrow live before the poverty, below the poverty line. In, in Owasso, 7% of our people live before the poverty line. And the first, one of the first questions I asked when I came here to a leader in this town, you've heard me say this before, is where are the poor in Owasso? And he looked me in the eye and he said without a moment's hesitation, oh, Owasso does not have any poor. And you know what's remarkable? They've done studies to show that if the Christian church would tithe just a minimum of 10%, and a cor- if, you could, if you could subtract for corruption and you could figure out how to do this, you would eliminate world poverty immediately. Just think what we could be as a young church. As a young church, if we began to give out of the joyful overflow of our heart, and we begin to think about ways to make Owasso beautiful, creatively giving of our surplus for them, and so I can't do this by myself. The elders can't do this by We have to get together and think creatively about the systems of ways that we can use our resources to help Owasso flourish. Are you willing to help me do that? That is why we've planted a church here. It is to see people come to Christ believing personally, but it's also to see this entire town changed because there's a radical new community of people who give out of their poverty joyfully there's a church in seattle it's not mars hill i'm not sure what church it is there's a church in seattle that i heard about this week who sets up a fund for people who have not yet bought a first home and the church gives them the money for their house straight up they pay cash for that house and then that couple pays that mortgage back to the church as their tithe that is so cool. Wouldn't it be cool to do that? If you to go to a church that says, we actually make a difference. It's not just we sing songs and we leave and we act. There's almost no difference in the way our houses look from non-believers in the city. That's not to make you feel guilty. That's just, it is just what it is. But what could it be like if we got together and we thought creatively about what that looks like? And because I often need help to see what this looks like, um, there's a, a professor at Denver Seminary named Craig Bloomberg. I want to read you his story. It's helpful. And then with this, I'll close. I know the hour is getting late. Here's Bloomberg's story of how he and his wife decided to give. I just want you to hear it. And by the way, this is not to make anybody feel guilty, okay? It's just to give us illustrations and story after story of story examples because you need stories to help make it concrete for us. Here's the story. When we were first married more than 18 years ago, my wife and I committed to begin with a tithe. 
based on the very modest income I had as a graduate student, and then to increase that percentage if God increased his annual provisions for us. That's called a, a gradiated tithe. Over the years, God has blessed us. Our overall combined family income puts us at $4,000 below the average household income for our affluent suburban community. Nevertheless, we are able to give over 30% of our income to our church and to parachurch organizations and individuals involved in Christian ministry. This was our fifth consecutive year topping 30%, following the principle of the gradiated tithe. I must quickly confess that we live in a large, comfortable suburban home, and it's true that our neighbors, for the most part, are working class or retired rather than professional, and that our suburb is surrounded by considerably more affluent ones to which most of my once professional neighbors have moved. We are happy to give nice gifts to our kids so as to make them not feel too different from their peers socioeconomically, and to enjoy recreational activities and cultural and sporting events, to enjoy a meal out, Though compared with our suburban friends, we do the latter considerably less frequently. We refuse to go into debt for anything but property and education, bought cars only that we could afford to pay cash for, bought goods at bulk, discount stores, yada, 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 he goes on. We have not amassed the number or nature of clothes most Westerners have been compelled to accumulate, nor is anything I've written meant um, to suggest that I believe savings, investments, insurance, or pension schemes are wrong. Not at all. I have all these things in hope of their earnings continuing. But while I know of others who, for a variety of reasons, have adopted a much more radically simple lifestyle, God has not yet led me to follow after them, even after considerable discussion, prayer, and soul-searching. You know, there are people that I know, he says, that have given more than I have, but I just don't feel compelled to do that. And that's Okay. In short, I feel I've had a very rewarding life, materially speaking, and I'm not particularly exemplary in my model of sacrificial giving. But when America considers that the average Christian gives a total per family of less than 3% of their per capita income, surely we can do considerably better. Now, the principle is obvious. You give the Lord the whole of your life. And the specific way you do that with regards to money is the decision for you and your family to make. But are you asking those questions together? Lord and I are asking those questions together too. And we're not particularly exemplary in that way, but we're trying the best we can. And we want to continue to try to lean out, to trust the Lord, to trust him. We do theologically. Do we trust him materially? How about you? You will feel guilty if you don't see the price of stewardship that has been paid for you and that Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he wants to know you. And in light of that great gift, he wants you to be able to say, everything I have is yours, Lord. What are you calling me to do for your namesake and for the joy of being your child? On the way out today, there are some books called The Treasure Principle by a a man named Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn picketed an abortion clinic um, years ago, and um, the judge basically came down on him and some others and said, you cannot earn more, the true story, you cannot earn more than minimum wage the rest of your life, or a quarter of what you earn above minimum wage goes to that abortion clinic. You imagine that? 
He cannot earn more than minimum wage his entire life as a pastor. Or a quarter of what he earns goes to an abor- that abortion clinic that he picketed. And so he divested himself of everything he owned. And he lives with, on minimum wage. His name is Randy Alcorn. He's wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. And I just encourage you to read it as a family over the next couple of weeks. And just assess, are we giving the whole of our life to the Lord when it comes to the way that we think about our resources? Jesus wants you to experience the joy of stewardship. And there's a lot we can do together, self-included. Levites were not excluded from the tithe. I am right there with you. You can challenge me as I challenge you to be for a while so in this community a beautiful picture of Jesus' kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to know that everything that we have been given comes because of your own radical generosity the radical generosity of you, Lord, giving of yourself so that we who were poverty-stricken in sin might have life. Father, would you strengthen us, we pray, to be able to give of our resources as so many of us do so well. Lord, would you encourage those who already do, would you remind them that you are pleased, that it's beautiful, that you love them? And Lord, would you remind those who are still struggling to give, Lord, that you are pleased because of Christ, that you love them, and that giving to you is not going to make you love them more. You love them already infinitely, but you want them to experience the joy of your stewardship. So would you help me, I pray. Would you help us? Let the gospel transform everything about us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.